There is a brand of Christianity that is prominent and prevalent in our society that I suspect Jesus would not even recognize. I've been told that we live in a Christian nation, yet most days that is highly debatable. The term Christian has been stretched so broadly that it has lost its elasticity. In a 2015 national poll, it was reported that 75% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. Now, while I will admit that that's 10 points fewer than it was a decade ago, it still causes me to stop and wonder, does Jesus acknowledge and know three out of every four Americans? There is a prominent understanding of Christianity that says that Jesus is consumed with your health and wealth, that God is preoccupied with making sure that you live in the big house and drive the fanciest SUV, that you never have any moment of suffering or sacrifice, and all the while uh, you maintain a great healthy physique, that you're happy and comfortable, and that you surrender to the claims of Christ whenever it is convenient for you. My friend, the problem with that is that you nowhere find that description in sacred scripture, that if our cultural Christianity is true, then God the Father owes God the Son a huge apology. Jesus was born in a barn. He was raised in obscurity. He lived a life of poverty. He never owned a house. Uh, He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. The stars were his blanket. The rock was his pillow. Jesus was one who came to earth to save despicable, gross, selfish, sinful humanity. And the only way for him to do that successfully was for him to come and die in our place to be our substitute. So Jesus came on mission from God to rescue you and to rescue me, to reconcile lost sinners unto the Holy Father. And the only way that was possible was for Jesus to willingly give himself up so that his bruised, bloody body was nailed to a rough cross of wood, he was violently and viciously put to death, that in the third decade of the first century, his precious blood uh, spilled, splattered, and squirted out of his body into the chilling wind of the April morning, Uh, and then Jesus' dead body was taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed tomb, but the story doesn't end there, because on the third day, that dead body began to breathe again, and Jesus got up, and he burst forth from the tomb, with all power and healing in his wings. And Jesus, by his actions, conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave and secured your salvation and my salvation. And it is this Jesus who declares that if you're going to come after me, you must deny self, take up cross, and follow him daily. Out of all the word pictures that the Bible gives us, this imagery of cross-bearing Christianity seems to be the most appropriate understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if there's anybody this morning who's thinking about being a Christian, let me warn you 
that you're about to embark upon something that will require the whole of you. It is with that in mind, I invite you to take a Bible, turn to the gospel according to Mark. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. As this morning, I will read Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And I will attempt to do my best to preach in your hearing a sermon that's entitled, Cross-Bearing Christianity. Cross-Bearing Christianity. Mark chapter 8, let's begin at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Well, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. May the Lord add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. From the outset, I'm going to give you the big idea of the sermon. It has two points. That if you and I are going to have cross-bearing Christianity, first and foremost, we must confess Jesus as Christ. Number two, we must learn to surrender everything to the suffering servant. The backdrop of our story is the beautiful, posh Caesarea Philippi. It was a city that was originally built in honor of the Roman Caesar. It was a region that was highly patriotic. There were numerous temples and monuments and buildings that promoted and advertised Caesar is Lord. It's against this backdrop that Jesus asked a radical question. Now, most of the time, it's the rabbi who answers the question, not asks the question. Yet in this moment, it is Jesus the rabbi who peppers his disciples with a couple of important questions. The first one is this, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and so others, one of the prophets. The thread that binds all three of those responses together is that it was believed that that was the type of person that would be the forerunner to the coming of Christ. 
So in other words, at best, what people were saying about Jesus is that you are a good man, but not the God man. You are a good man, like John the Baptist, like uh, Elijah, like one of the other prophets. For we all know that when Messiah comes, the culture said, when Messiah comes, he will be accompanied by the coming of a great, powerful prophet. And maybe Jesus is that prophet. In other words, they were declaring he's a good man, but not the God man. Now, the answers that the disciples gave Jesus on that day to that question, those were just the nice names that people called Jesus. You do know that Jesus was called a lot of other names, too. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they called him a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he hung out with sinners and prostitutes in the places where they resided. In fact, uh, the elders said that he was demon-possessed. Possessed by Beelzebub, that's what they said. By the prince of demons, he drives out demons. His own family members called him insane. They came to take charge of him. Yet on this day in Caesarea Philippi, the answer that was given to Jesus, those were just the best scenarios. Those were just the best names that Jesus was called. Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets reincarnated. But then Jesus got real serious real fast. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is a question that is a universal question. What I mean by that is that this question must be posed and answered by every single person who has ever walked this sod. Everybody has to deal with Jesus. Everybody has to answer, who is he? Who is his identity? Who do you say I am? This is an important question. And it's Peter the loudmouth of the bunch, who speaks up and declares, you are the Christ. This is a pivotal statement in Mark's gospel. In fact, it is the Mason-Dixon line of scripture. It is the line of demarcation. It separates sheep from goats, wheat from weeds, children of light from children of darkness. It is this confession that separates Believer from non-believer, truth from lies, heaven from hell. It is Peter who declares, you are Christ. Now Mark arranges his gospel around two confessions, and this is the first one. It's found right here in the middle of the gospel. It is the hinge upon which the entire gospel of Mark swivels. It is this confession found on the lips of the Jewish man named Peter. And the second confession will be found at the end of the gospel, Mark chapter 15, while Jesus is precariously dangling on a cross made of wood, it's a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who will look up and declare, surely this man was the Son of God. And those two confessions form the identity of Jesus, and they fit in nicely to Mark's overall purpose, which his main idea purpose statement is given to us in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you can naturally see how Mark, as he thought about these two confessions, the one from the Apostle Peter, the other from the Roman centurion, he says this describes in its totality the identity of Jesus. In our passage, we are told that Jesus is Christ. We've said before, we'll say it numerous times again, That Christ is not the last name of Jesus, as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. 
No, Christ is not his name. It's his title. The word Christ means Messiah. It's the long-awaited anointed one. Peter's exactly right. You are Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah. You're not a forerunner to the coming of Christ. You are Christ. You are the one that's been hoped for. You're the one that's been prayed about. You're the one that has been looked for all throughout the ages. And you are the fulfillment of of God in the flesh. You are the God-man, fully God and fully human. You are not just a good man. You're the God-man. This is a great word of testimony on the lips of the Jewish man named Peter. But then in our passage, uh, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody about this. That sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, you would think this is good PR. I mean, finally, somebody understands the identity of Jesus. It's not a demon. I mean, up until now, everybody who understands the true identity of Jesus has been demonic. <laughs> but now, finally, somebody understands the reality of who Jesus is. You would think he would tell them, now go and tell everybody. But instead... He tells them to be quiet. Why this messianic secret in Mark's gospel? Well, I think there may be a couple of answers to that question, but let me just give you one. I think the reason that Jesus told them to pipe down right now was because they didn't fully understand what it meant for Jesus to be Christ. They still had in their minds, and Peter will articulate this later in so many words, that this idea that that Jesus will be a Christ who's a military individual to come overthrow the Roman government and the Roman regime in Israel and to show the world who's boss in a very powerful, macho, uh, military kind of way. And Jesus understood that neither Peter nor the boys really understood what it meant for Jesus to be Christ. So he plainly taught them. In fact, this is the first of three plain teachings about the inevitable, impending, upcoming death of Jesus. This is the first place, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. We'll read Jesus teach very plainly about his upcoming crucifixion in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. And on all three occasions, the disciples don't get it. They don't understand what it means for Jesus to be Christ. Uh, Peter can't handle the scandal that Jesus is the suffering servant as portrayed in Isaiah chapter 53. He can't handle the fact that Jesus might be the one who is smitten and afflicted uh, and, and crushed for our iniquities. No, no. In his mind, the Messiah must be powerful, not suffering. Must be a mighty leader, not one who succumbs to death. No, no. He can't be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so Peter doesn't understand and none of the disciples understand. It's in our passage that that Peter rebukes Jesus. That's the same word that is used previously of how Jesus rebukes the demons. Stop and think about that. Peter speaks to Jesus the way Jesus had been speaking to the demons. And he tries to put him in his place. He tries to tell him what for. He tries to instruct Jesus on how it's going to go down. And in our passage, it is Peter who rebukes Jesus. In chapter 9, when Jesus speaks plainly about his upcoming death, we are told by Mark that the disciples did not understand, but they were too afraid to ask any questions. You ever been there? You don't know exactly what to say or how to ask the question, so instead of showing your ignorance, you just remain silent. 
That's the disciples. In chapter 10, after Jesus once again speaks plainly about this, it is James and John who have the audacious request. Hey, Jesus, when you come in your glory, can, can I sit on your right and my brother sit on your left? They have no clue what Jesus is talking about. When, when it says that Jesus spoke plainly to them, that word plainly means uh, that, that, that he is um, withholding nothing. That it is frank, open speech. That he's putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. He really wants them to get this. Out of all of his teachings, this is something that he really wants them to understand. He doesn't speak to them in a parabolic fashion about his upcoming death on the cross. He speaks plainly to them. Guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, he said. And I must go to Jerusalem. That word must that he uses several times in our passage is the Greek word for a very emphatic necessary. It must happen. It is necessary. There's no way around it. It's got divine connotation to it. It must take place in this way. It cannot happen any other way. It must take place. And he plainly tells them, I must go to Jerusalem and I must be handed over to the religious rulers. They're going to beat me and spit upon me. They're going to ridicule me. Uh, they're going to nail me to a cross of wood. I'm going to be killed and it must happen that way. And then I will be raised from the dead on the third day. You can't get any plainer than that. You can't get any clearer than that. Yet the disciples don't understand. It doesn't compute to them what it means for Jesus to be Christ. They're still thinking that to be Christ means that he has come to make our life comfortable and convenient. He has come to set us free and to liberate us, not from the shackles of sin, but from the shackles of uh, a governmental uh, uh, boundary and, and governmental uh, uh, bounds. And so this Jesus has come to, to really help us and, and, to, and to really stick it to the man. And, and he's come to really set us free. And that's what we want. He's come to make our life better. And all the while, this is how the disciples are viewing this. And Jesus says, no. Listen, the way of the cross is the way of self-denial and suffering. The way of the cross is the will of God. The way of the cross is the way that I must go and you must go. So repeatedly he tells them, this must take place. They don't understand it. And if I were in their sandals and if you were in their sandals, I don't think we would understand it either. I don't think we would get it. They don't fully understand until after the Calvary experience. Till after Jesus is nailed to the cross, placed in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he's raised from the dead, then it goes off in their minds like a lightning bolt. Yeah, that's what he meant. That's what he was trying to tell us at Caesarea Philippi. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. He's that 16th century Danish theologian. Soren Kierkegaard said that life is lived forward, but it's understood backwards. Sometimes you don't understand life until you have hindsight perspective. You live life forward and you're going through your days, your weeks, your months, and you can't quite put it all together. You can't quite connect the dots until you're able to look back upon your life. Life is lived forward, Kierkegaard says, but it's only understood backwards. This is what happens in the lives of the disciples. This is what happens in Peter's life. Because Peter he will stand up on that day of Pentecost and he will clearly communicate the gospel. And what's going to happen on that day? Some 3,000 people are going to come to faith in Christ. He's going to get it. It's going to be clear to him. It's just not clear what it means for Jesus to be Christ. I think that 
for the disciples, uh, they are like the blind man at Bethsaida. That dandy little story is tucked away for us right before the passage I read for you. You may be familiar with it. Jesus and the disciples were going to the village called Bethsaida. Some individuals brought to Jesus a blind man. They pleaded with Jesus, heal our friend, restore his sight. Jesus took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. And then, this is a shocker to me, Jesus straight up spit on the man's eyes. Now that almost sounds cruel because that man's blind. He can't duck and dodge. He didn't know it was coming. He didn't realize what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, I mean, Jesus hocked a holy loogie right there on his face. I mean, and Jesus, he spit on him and the guy didn't even know it was coming. He spit on him. And then Jesus laid his hands on him and said, can you see? And the man said, well, uh, let me clear the sanctified saliva off my eyes, but, uh, I can see people, but they look like trees. And then Jesus had to touch him a second time. And then he said, now can you see? And Mark says that the second time the man saw everything clearly. This little story about a two-step healing process has concerned more than a few theologians and church men and women throughout the ages. People have walked away from that story scratching their heads saying, I don't really know what to do with that. I don't know what to make heads or tails out of that story. I mean, is it a story where Jesus was just having a bad day? You know, and instead of one touch, it took two touches. Or is it a case where it was a really hard situation of blindness? I mean, is this like a really bad case? I mean, what gives? Because normally all Jesus has to do is reach out and touch and instantly somebody is healed. And many times he doesn't even have to touch them for them to be healed. He just has to speak the healing into reality. Yet on this day, it took not one touch, but two. The first time it didn't seem to take completely. The first time he could see, but it was still fuzzy, kind of people walking around like trees, but then he touched a second time and everything became clear. I think that is like an object lesson of spiritual blindness. And I think that describes the disciples in our story. And I think that Mark does a masterful job of putting that little story right before our passage. Because Peter, James, and John and the rest of the disciples... At first, they don't really get it. They are cross-bearers in word only. That's a dangerous place to stay, I'll warn you. They were cross-bearers in word only. They, they had some outline understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be Christ, but it was like a blind man seeing people that look like trees. But no, once Easter happened, once the cross and the glorious resurrection took place, then their eyes were touched and changed and they saw everything clearly and they realized who Jesus was and they adamantly lived for him and they confessed him with their lips and their lives. So friend, if you're going to be a cross-bearing Christian, you first and foremost have to confess Jesus as Christ. But secondly, and I would say this is as equally important, you must surrender everything to the suffering servant. This is where uh, Peter went astray at least here in Mark chapter 8. He was a cross-bearer by word only. And because of that, 
He was an easy target for the adversary. He was an agent for the adversary. He was used, abused by the devil himself. It's the devil that distorted this opportunity. And and it's the devil that, that used Peter in an effort to derail and distract the son of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. Stop and think about that. Every time I read this line that it was Peter who tried to, you know, put Jesus in his place and tried to rebuke Jesus and tell him what for and tell him how it was going to go down. He was not going to be a suffering servant. He was going to be a mighty, majestic king. When he was trying to tell Jesus how to be savior and sovereign, Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but this jolts me. This stuns me. I mean, I realize that Peter has its, has his warts and he's flawed just like you, just like me. But if you look at all the people in church history, it would seem that Peter would be pretty close to the top of an individual of a person who seemed to get it. And even Peter was used of the devil. Even Peter in this moment was manipulated by the adversary. And if that could happen to our good friend Peter, is it possible that the devil could use you and use me in an effort to derail the mission and the work of the Lord? That in itself is a jolting, stunning reality. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the plans of God in mind. You have the plans of men. Because Jesus understood that the way of the cross was the will of God. It must take place. It was necessary. There was no way around it. And Jesus was not going to be denied. And then Jesus looking to the entire crowd. Don't miss that. Turning to the entire crowd. He said, this mission is not just mine and it's not just for Peter and the disciples. It's also for you. Because if anyone would come after me, he or she must deny self, take up cross and follow me. This is a statement that Jesus gives not just to the inner circle, not just to his 12 disciples, not just to the believers of the first century. He gives this message to every single believer that has ever lived and ever will live. This is the mandate of the Messiah. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be a cross bearer, if you're going to live out the gospel as it's described, not in our culture, but by the words of Christ, if you're going to live the way Jesus wants you to live, you will have to deny self take up cross and follow him. In other words, what he's saying is that you have to learn to surrender everything to the suffering servant. Deny self. What does that mean? Well, it's not self-hatred and it's not self-rejection. It is the removing of self as the permanent fixture in your life. Let me say that again. Self-denial is not self-hatred and it's not self-rejection. It is the removing of self as the permanent fixture in your life. You and I, because of our sinful nature, there's a natural inertia and a bent of our soul for us to turn inward and selfish upon ourself. Because we have a nature and a propensity to want to serve and satisfy self. All of us have it. 
All of us are born with this selfish nature. A person who says, I'm not selfish, you're just lying to yourself, okay? Because every individual that's ever been created, we have uh, total depravity. It is touched and tainted, everything inside of us. And one of the ways that it manifests itself in our life is utter selfishness. So if you don't think that you're selfish, let me just simply ask you, uh, who do you think about the most and who do you make it your aim to please and who do you rearrange your schedule for? And there may be a few people on your short list, but I dare say that you are probably near the top of that list. I mean, you think about yourself. You rearrange your schedule for what you want to do. After all, you're the one who sets your schedule. There are often times that when my schedule gets so jam-packed and so many things that are going on. In fact, I've said to some of you, even in this congregation, I've said, you know, if I ever find the guy who creates my schedule, I'm going to have a few words to share with him. Because reality is, it's me. I'm the one who sets my schedule. And you're the one who sets your schedule. You say, no, 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 it's not me. It's my boss. No, 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 it's my children. No, 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 it's everything else. No, it's the things that you prioritize, the things that you value, the things that you think are important. They make their way on your schedule. It is you that sets your own schedule. And so oftentimes we we uh, think about ourselves. We rearrange our schedule for ourselves. We make it our aim to please us at some point along the way. Why? Because we have a natural bent and inertia to move towards self. This is why the words of John the Baptist are so astounding. For John the Baptist declares, I must decrease so he can increase. That goes against the grain of humanity. Most of us do not think I must decrease so he can increase. The natural bent of our soul is that I must increase. I got to look out for myself. I got to make much of myself. I got to make money for myself. I've got to do what I want to do. I've got to make a name for myself. I must increase so everybody else can decrease. But John the Baptist says, no, no, I've got to decrease so he can increase. It is William Lane in his commentary on the gospel of Mark who says self-denial is moving the center of gravity in your life off of self and to a reckless abandon for the will of God. That's self-denial. It is moving the center of gravity off of self in your life to a reckless abandon for the will of God. I like his understanding of self-denial. I like his definition of self-denial, which then causes me to ask myself and ask you, how reckless are you for Christ? If it's true that self-denial is the moving of the center of gravity off of self towards a reckless abandon for the will of God, how recklessly are you following Jesus Christ? Let me ask it this way. When other people look at your life, what words were they used to describe you as a follower of Jesus? Because you do realize that the watching world has every right to peer into your life and make a judgment call on how you're living your life. Because you and I declare that Jesus is important to us. You and I declare that he is king. You and I declare that he is sovereign. The watching world has every right to look into our life and say, is he really by your decisions, by the way you spend your money, by how you spend your time, by how you arrange your calendar, by the things you wear, by the places you go, by the things you do, uh, by, the, by the friends you keep. I mean, really, the world has a right to look at us to say, how reckless are you for Christ? 
And when they look at your life, young person, when they look at your life, middle-aged person, when they look at your life, senior adult, when they look at our lives, how reckless are we for Christ? People may use words like, well, he or she is a fickle follower, an occasional follower, a calculated follower, a sensible follower. They may say the word faithful follower, but they'll use it as a caveat to say faithful sometimes, right? I mean, what word would be used to describe you? As I worked with this text this past week, I realized, you know what? I I am more reckless today than I've ever been, but that doesn't mean I'm as reckless as I need to be. I mean, I am more adamant today that Jesus is Lord than I've ever been. I am more convinced that he is the only way unto salvation, both now more than any other time in the 44 and a half years of my life on planet earth. But yet even this week, the Lord was revealing some things that where I need to be even more reckless for him, where I need to surrender even more unto him. It was John MacArthur who said, and I heard him say it, He said, it's been my observation that the call of the gospel is a call of self-denial. And the more I give to Jesus, the more he requires of me. It's the call of self-denial. Our friend David Platt would oftentimes say that your life is a blank check and all you get to do is sign the check. And it's God who fills in the amount He tells you what he requires from you. You don't get to tell him how much you're going to do and how much you're going to give and where you're going to go and what you're not going to surrender. No, all you do is sign the check and then he fills in the amount. It was Martin Luther, that 16th century Protestant reformer, who said religion that costs nothing, gives nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Can I remind you once again what I said at the outset? It was C.S. Lewis who said, if there's anyone today thinking about being a Christian, let me warn you that you're about to embark upon something that will require the whole of you. This is what Jesus plainly teaches his disciples. If you're going to come after me, you must deny self and take up cross. The cross was the emblem of suffering and shame. It was the picture of a condemned individual, one who was giving the ultimate sacrifice, his very life. And Jesus says, you've got to carry your cross. That you've got to, you've got to, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to carry cross and follow me. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. So long as I agree with it. Right? That's really what we say. Wherever he leads, I'll go if it's convenient for me. Wherever he leads, I'll go if I agree with him. Wherever he leads, I'll go if I can surrender it. No, he says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a cross bearer, if you're going to have this type of gospel Christianity, deny self, take up cross, and follow him. The old country preacher told me a long time ago, you got to attend a funeral every day. And I thought to myself, I mean, I like you, preacher, but that's morbid. Why would anybody want to go to a funeral every single day? And then he described and defined his terms. He said, I don't mean that you go to a funeral home and you go to a funeral every day. He said, but every day you die to yourself. 
your selfish agenda, your selfish plans, your selfish wants, and every single day you die to self and you say to Jesus, you're king and I'm not. You're sovereign and I follow you. Friend, this is cross-bearing Christianity and I think this is the only version of Christianity that you find in the sacred script. This is how Jesus defines what it means to be a follower. He says, listen, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. If, if you want to gain life, be lost in Christ. Lose yourself in his plan, his agenda, his dreams. If you lose yourself in him, you will be found. But if you selfishly try to save, grip, and clutch your plans and your agenda, then you, my friend, will be lost. It was Jim Elliott, that missionary martyr to Ecuador, who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to save what he cannot lose. We give Christ our all. He's our suffering servant. And that is what it looks like to follow after him. Jesus comes to the end of our passage and he simply says, uh, if you're ashamed of me in this vile, adulterous, sinful generation, then rest assured I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come in glory in the clouds with the angels. So in other words, Deny Jesus now and you will be denied by him then. Receive him now. You'll be received by him then. It's really up to you. Jesus says this is cross-bearing Christianity. To confess Jesus as Christ. But don't do it by word only. Because I am convinced that Jesus has had it up to here with fickle followers, Sunday saints, and capricious converts. I think he's had up to here with people who say, I'll give you lip service on Sunday, but I really have no intention of living recklessly abandoned unto you. Jesus says, I've had it up to here, Peter. I've had it up to here, James and John. I've had it up to here, disciples of the first century and disciples of the 21st century. Don't forget, Mark is writing to an audience who was living in the mid-60s of the first century. They were living in and around Rome. They were Gentile believers. They were suffering enormously persecution because of the faith. Some of them are being kidnapped at night. They're being abducted in the middle of the night, thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. Some of them were being speared alive, set ablaze at night in Nero's garden. And some of them were dying, giving their very lives unto the Lord. And Jesus was saying to them what he says to you, you just come and find life in me. Can I tell you just from a, a fellow traveler along the way, because that's what I am, I'm just doing the same journey that you're doing. I can tell you that it's worth it. I can tell you that he is worth it. I can tell you that, that whatever he, he requires of you, um, it's, it's a blessing to surrender it unto him, to give him your all. I mean, he is worth it. This cross-bearing Christianity, which flies in the face of the easy believism of our cultural Christianity, but this cross-bearing Christianity, this is the Christianity that Jesus came to die for and establish and provide in your life. And what Jesus calls you to, he'll give you the power to go through it. So that when before the Lord, I stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. 
Because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So praise the one who paid my debts and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debts and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debts and raised this life up from the dead. I wish somebody would help me. Oh, praise the one who paid my debts and raised this life up from the dead. His name is Jesus. And he calls me and calls calls you to deny self, take up cross and follow him. This is cross-bearing Christianity where you and I declare Jesus is Christ in our lips, in our lifestyles, through the best of our ability. We surrender everything unto him because he is the suffering servant, sovereign king of the universe. So this morning, I'm not going to ask you, are you a Christian? This morning I'm asking, are you a cross-bearing Christian? There is a great danger, church, to declare him as Christ in word only. There's a great danger in that. So to the best of your ability, not only confessing him as Christ, but surrender all that you are unto him, for he is the sovereign Savior and the suffering servant. And today, my prayer is that the center of gravity in your life takes a shift. Shifting from self to a reckless abandon to the will of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and help us to flesh out what it means to recklessly follow you. Father, if there's somebody here who is not a Christian, according to your claim, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's somebody here that um, has somebody on their mind, somebody that they're praying for, that they're wanting to share the gospel with, Lord, together, we just lift up those individuals and we pray that you will seek and find them and open up their eyes unto your salvation. And Father, please raise up a generation or two or three or four. Raise up generation after generation of people who are cross-bearing Christians. Don't just give you lip service, but they actually surrender their all unto you. And the gravity of life is shifted from self unto a reckless abandon for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.